0: Here's what I've learned from the 100 glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic medalists, startup unicorns, every one of them at every age and at every stage, whether they've had a bajillion successes or they've just had their first success, each one of them still has imposter syndrome every single time. But they don't hear it as imposter syndrome. They don't hear it as a limitation. They hear it as an invitation. They hear it as a sign that they're on the right track, that it's exciting and it's new and it's interesting.
1: Greetings everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz. And I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Laura gassner oding Laura's secret superpower is seeing your greatness and reflecting it back on you so that you can get unstuck and achieve extraordinary results in your own life. A frequent contributor to Good Morning America, the Today Show, Harvard Business Review, and Oprah Daily, Laura's 30-year resume is defined by her entrepreneurial edge. She was a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House helping shape AmeriCorps, left a leadership role at a respected national search firm to expand a tech startup, and founded, ran, and sold her own global search firm. Laura is turned on by the audacity of big ideas and she's never met a revolution she didn't like. Just ask her patient husband, two almost grown-up sons, and two troublesome pups who she lives with outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Laura, welcome to Unleashed.
0: I'm so excited to be here, Jeff.
1: So I've really enjoyed getting to know you just a little bit like so many other people uh, on Twitter. Uh, Tiffany Bova is someone that you know really well. And we had her on the show, I guess, just a little over a year ago now. And and, uh, as part of my preparation for this conversation, I certainly listened uh, to the latest uh, episode you recorded with her. But it's been one of my favorite parts is learning how interconnected the thought leadership community really is. But just such a thrill to finally have you on. So thank you for making time. Oh,
0: I mean, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm I'm, so honored. You have such an illustrious list of guests that I'm, you know, I just I just hope I can keep up. I mean, Tiffany Bova is is incredible, and I hope you'll have her back. She's got a new book coming out, too.
1: Well, uh, yeah, the question is not will I have her back, is will she come back? So I hope the answer to that is yes, Laura. So put in a good word for me next time you're chatting with her. Uh, and the, the other will thing... Do. The other thing that, I, uh, that I have an affinity toward you for is where you live. So Boston is one of my favorite cities. Like, I live in Western Canada, but I get down to Boston usually at least once a year for a Patriots game. So I'm very, I'm very envious of where you live.
0: Oh, uh, well, I mean, Western Canada is pretty gorgeous. We were out in Whistler last summer, Whistler in Vancouver. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's a pretty expensive place to live, but it's, I understand why. It's absolutely phenomenal.
1: Yeah, that is a great part of the world. I'm going to be out there for a conference uh, very soon. Uh, no, so, uh, Laura, I'm excited, really excited to talk to you about your upcoming book, Wonder Hell, but there, there's a few things just in your background. Like You have such an interesting background and such a diverse background, and this is definitely sort of a personal curiosity, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you had a chance to work in the Bill Clinton White House, and I, what was that experience like? I'm just fascinated to hear a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I should preface this by saying I was like 22 years old, 22, 23, 24, 25. So, so much of that experience for me was just about being young and being single and this sort of romantic moment in my life where like there was nothing but possibility. You know, people ask me all the time, like, you dropped out of law school and you joined this campaign because you heard this guy talk about this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. Like, what if it didn't work? And it never occurred to me that it wouldn't work because I was so young and naive and stupid that I just, I just, it was a good idea. I thought, of course, it'll work. Like, of course, I'll get elected. Of course, Congress will pass it. Of course, it will work. So, you know, I, the the best way I can use to just, the best words I can use to describe that time were like romantic and heady and and naive. <laughs> and It was such a simpler time. It also... They were the last two years before Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House. And so, you know, that really heralded a change in politics in, in the United States where it became much more vitriolic. So the, the, the election of 19, 1994, which was a midterm election, really changed the tenor. It was really like the the beginning of like Fox News and Republican, you know, talk radio. And so the first two years were this like really exciting sort of Camelot kind of feeling that were there. And then the last two years were this like really hard and ugly and like mudslinging, you know, Monica Lewinsky, like all that stuff were like in the last couple of years. So it was this, it was an interesting time. And I look back on it and, you know, I have a very sort of fraught relationship with the whole experience because at the time I was, you know, very much like, woohoo, Bill Clinton. And now I'm like, okay, there might've been some abuse of power going on. So it's just, you know, as a 52 year old, I have a very different feeling of it than I did as a 22 year old.
1: Yeah, no, I could see that. And without knowing you well, you seem to really have a knack for just jumping right in with both feet and then making the best of how it works out and being an optimist. Now, the other thing that's in your bio that caught my attention that you have a knack for is seeing other people's gifts and sort of reflecting that back to them. What's the earliest memory you have of possessing that capability?
0: Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I feel like I've always been a little bit of an instigator in that way and I I I I I, I know that there were moments Early on, like when I was working in the White House, one of the one of my assignments was to interview like a thousand AmeriCorps members and find the four that were going to sit next to the Hillary in the first lady's box during the State of the Union. So Bill Clinton, a year into the, the presidency, we passed uh, AmeriCorps. It was one of his signature campaign uh, legislative acts. And um he was going to talk about it in the state of the union. And so my job was to find four people with four great stories. They had to be diverse. They had to be telegenic. They had to have, you know, compelling stories, but not like trauma porn stories, right? Like they had to be exactly the right mix. And so I interviewed like a thousand different people. And then I found these four and, and I think That was probably the very beginning of me looking at people and seeing what makes them interesting and what makes them great. And then I went from working in the White House into executive search, where my job was to call the most successful people in the world and recruit them away on behalf of my clients. But in order to do that and to feel really, uh, uh, to be really compelled by increasing inclusion and diversity in the C-suite ranks in these organizations, I very often had to find people who were the first of, right, of whoever is going into this organization. And often my clients would say, well, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'll know it when I see it. And I'd say, well, if you're going to know it, if you see it, it means you've seen it before. And a lot of times when you hire the first of, you haven't seen it before and you're not hiring on track record, you're hiring on promise because that person hasn't necessarily had the opportunity to be able to have the track record. And so I think because I'm an eternal optimist, I, I look at people and I see promise very early, but as I'm talking about this, having never been asked this question before, so I'm sort of thinking about it as I go, it's such a good question. I'm a raging introvert. Like I make my living as a public speaker and I have to put myself out there, but I like, if I go to a party, I'm like standing in the corner by myself. And so I think In my early years, I probably spent a lot of time standing in the corner sizing people up and feeling like I could be comfortable in social and then eventually professional environments because I could, I learned to read people and read the room and understand what was happening. And so I can sort of give you the dots from where I see it professionally, but there's probably other dots earlier that formed the person that became that person.
1: Yeah, that it, that's a wonderful answer. And and I ask it because I'm, I'm always fascinated in people's origin stories. And I think that a lot of times, like a big part of life is getting back to the gifts that we developed in childhood. And and I think the people that oftentimes live the most fulfilling lives, they've, they figure out what their gift is, they find a way to make a living on that gift, but so often those gifts were with us way sooner than maybe we realized. So I think that's a phenomenal answer. I love how you sort of backtracked it and thought about it uh, as you were going there. I know I'm going to have to write a blog post about that or something. This is right.
0: <laughs> it's a really it's a really good it's a really good question because you know when I was in executive search, we look. I used to ask people all the time, like you know, tell me about a, you know a parent or a coach or a or a mentor or somebody who impacted you. And you would hear these stories about people. And then you would say, well, you know, what are some of the characteristics or the traits that you picked up from them? And then as you're going through the interview process and eventually the reference checking process, you start seeing little sort of, you know, you got to see the dots that are there. And sometimes you see things like, you know, I was raised by a control freak. And so I always learned I was one to control things. And then in the interview process, you're like, oh, there's the control freak coming out. In some ways good, in some ways not so good. Let me scratch that itch. In the in the you know in in, in the uh, reference checking process to see if there's an issue there or not an issue there and so I love that question of sort of going back to the beginning because I think we all are formed very early and then the question is like does that manifest in good ways or does that manifest in ways that are holding us back from everything we can be
1: Yeah that's well said that really that resonates with me a lot now I, I, I want to get to your latest book uh, Wonder Hell in a second but you have said that the genesis or the idea for the book came about because of how you were feeling after launching your last book, Limitless. Can you take us through a little bit, what were you experiencing and what were you going through that led you to this discovery of Wonder Hell?
0: Yeah, so I wrote Limitless because I had been asked to do a TEDx talk and that TEDx talk got some attention and I started getting offers for money to go speak places. And I spent 20 years in executive search. So I'd been in the deliverables business. Like I couldn't finish a project without having like a three ring, you know, four inch binder that I had to give to my clients. Kind of a pain in the ass, right? Consulting is annoying. Like you have to like produce all these things. And then I sold that company to the women who helped me build it wrote this blog post, got asked to do this TEDx. And then suddenly I'm like getting flown places to go speak. And I was getting paid like $1,500, you know, like I wasn't getting paid a lot of money. But as I started getting offers for more and more money, I started noticing that all the people who were getting what I considered real money, all had books. So I was like, I better get me one of them. So I wrote Limitless basically in six weeks. It was the culmination of 25 years and six weeks of what I learned as an executive recruiter. But that book came out and I thought three people would buy it, like my mother, my father, and maybe my sister used from my dad, right? Like I really did. I just, I only wanted it as like a fancy business card. Like put me on your stage, pay me more money. Here's like, I know things. Here's my book, right? That's the thing. And then it debuted at number two on the Washington Post bestseller list, right behind Michelle Obama, which sounds really impressive, except she was like eight and a half million books ahead of me, (laughs) but it still debuted at number two. And in that moment, I was like, well, that's kind of cool. And I had just spoken at an event where I was the undercard for Malala, like Malala, Malala. Is that like a selfie with Malala? Like the bestseller, you know, and I'm sitting on the airplane on the way home and I'm completely exhausted from like book launch and just like getting out there and doing all the things. And I'm on a red eye um, because Malala Friday night, my goddaughter's bought mitzvah Saturday morning, like can't miss either one of them. So I'm on this red eye. And I'm so tired and it's four in the morning and I can't sleep, but I open up my laptop and I just like type out the screed of a post on Facebook and it goes something like it's 428 AM or maybe it's 128 AM or maybe it's 728 AM. By the way, I was coming back from Vancouver on this thing. I was like all night flight. It's like, I don't know where I am, but I'm 1200 miles from where I started and 1200 miles from where I'm going And between the blur that was yesterday and the blur that will be tomorrow is the space I'm in right now. And the space I'm in right now is wonder hell. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's humbling. It's wonderful that anybody wants to even read a word that I wrote. And also, if it debuted at number two, how do I get to number one? If it's on Washington Post, how do I get to Wall Street Journal? Like, what else could I do? I didn't even expect this. And suddenly I saw this potential of who I could be and what I could be. And immediately I started feeling this crush of anxiety and uncertainty and uh, and and self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Like, who was I to think I could do this? So it was wonderful, but it was also hell. It was wonder hell. And everything that I read was like, if you can name it, you can tame it. And I was like, well, that's nonsense, right? Like, I don't want to tame it. Like, I want to know what's in there. I'm excited about this. If I can name it, I can claim it. So I wrote this whole post. I was like, I invite you to join me in Wonder Hell where my dreams can come true and yours can too. And then I closed my laptop and I didn't think anything of it. And when I got off the plane, there were like 100 likes and 20 shares and a bunch of people, including the publisher for Limitless going, you know, that would make a great topic for your next book. Make a great title for your next book. And I really... um, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. I got to like focus on Limitless. Nine months later, um, the pandemic happens. And I found myself sort of reinventing everything that I was doing and just having conversations with people, doing my own podcast, having conversations. And all the conversations were sort of around this moment where everything changed for them. And lo and behold, in the way that Facebook does, I got a Facebook memory of this post coming back. And I read the memory and I was like, oh. That's the moment, this wonder hell moment. All these people have all gone through the same thing. And suddenly there were themes that emerged. So the book really came out of me being in wonder hell and thinking like everything I've read, you know, I think there's got to be a way through it. So I read like, had I crushed it and I 10X it and I leaned in and I did all the things I was supposed to do and it didn't get any easier. Every time I was successful, it got harder. And I was like, there's got to be a way out. And so I did all these interviews and I found out that, in fact, there's not, but there are tons of lessons that we can learn about how not to survive these moments, but actually how to learn how to thrive in them instead.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. And one of the things I love about Wonder Hell is like anything, any complicated issue there's this notion of healthy tension where you're managing like what seem to be competing thoughts and you have to learn Barack Obama has actually talked a lot about this I think in his in his book about the strongest leaders are able to to sit with that healthy tension and to me it's like yes. the tension of like you believe in yourself and you're moving forward and you're being courageous and living a life of of adventure but then you also have all of this self-doubt and you mentioned imposter syndrome and, and how do you sit with that? And that's what I'm kind of curious about is how have you learned to sit with it?
0: Yeah, so um, the preface of this is that in um, in 2012 I had what I like to describe as a, a, a midlife crisis where I decided having never run a mile in my entire life that I would run the Boston Marathon. As you mentioned, I live in Boston. I can't qualify. I'm very slow. To call what I say is running would be an insult to actual runners out there. But um I decided I would run the Boston Marathon. And my husband's like, You're insane. You're not gonna do it. And I was like, if I can get a charity bib in the next five minutes, will you support me? Like, will you not tell me every mile this is insane? And he was like, Yes. So I posted on Facebook that I wanted to do it, and within five minutes I had a bib um, because I'd spent 20 years working with nonprofits. So I had, I mean, I'd game the system for 20 years. I had plenty of contacts. So um, I decided to run the marathon. And one of the things that the marathon coach told us over and over and over again is the key to accomplishing anything hard is being comfortable, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And you have never experienced discomfort like when you're running a marathon, right? <laughs> There's this moment um, that that when, when you train for a marathon, which is 26.2 miles, you only run 20 miles in training. It's as far as you get. And then on marathon day, you get to mile 20.1 and you're like, I wonder what happens now, right? Like what what, I wonder, I've only got 10K left. I've run a 10K before. I could probably do it, except I've already been running for three hours. So I have another hour of running. I don't know. And like a voice pops up on one shoulder. That's like, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. Like walk, crawl. Doesn't matter. Like, run, you're gonna get through the finish line and you are going to be forever known as a marathoner, right? Amazing. And then as soon as you get through that thought, another voice pops up on the other shoulder, and it's like, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're gonna die out here. This is the dumbest thing you ever decided to do in your life. And only one of those voices gets to win. But you're out there and you're like, or in my case, I'm very slow. Um and you have to make the decision. Like you are the only one. Nobody is pushing your legs forward. And so in this moment when you're like, I don't know what happens. I don't know how to do this. I'm chafing in all the wrong places. Everything's uncomfortable. Every voice inside of me is screaming like, stop. You have to get comfortable just pushing through it. And I think that experience of being comfortable being uncomfortable, like not having any idea how it's going to go pretty much suits you very well for entrepreneurship, for leadership, for wonder hell. I, I I found being a leader to be so much more challenging than being a doer or being a manager, right? Because you can control all the things that you want to control. And at the end of the day, people are just going to be people, right? Like I had a, I had, a, I had an old friend who'd said like, this work would be great if it weren't for all the effing people. right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. So I don't know. I think the pursuit of certainty and of comfort is a fool's errand because I don't think we can ever have it. I think the only choice is to be comfortable being uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, if, if we stay the same and, and we resort, uh, if we overcorrect to comfort, the world is changing around us all of the time. It always has been. And they, I think it's pretty clear that the world is not slowing down. It's it's, it's changing even, even, even faster than ever. So I, I wanted to go back to what you said in this marathon example. You've, you know, you've got this supporter on your shoulder and the naysayer on the other. Are there some tactics? Because I, I kind of look at it as a, almost a form of exposure therapy that we're not just born being comfortable <laughs> in discomfort. Are there, some, like, are there some tactics that you've used to try to lean into that discomfort to silence that naysayer?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the hard thing about doing hard things isn't the hard. It's the do right? It's the do. And, and so here's the thing. Like I didn't have to, I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to run 26.2 miles. I woke up one day and I said, wouldn't it be cool if I could do that? I don't know if I could do it. Right. But the reason that I woke up that day was because the day before I had run my first 10 K, but before I did that, I did a 5 K before I did that. I did a mile right before I turned 40. I walked into my kid's school and the head of the school was standing there. Her name was Ellen. She was like a 65-year-old woman. And she looked strong. And she looked right. And she looked lean. And she just looked healthy. And I was like, what's going on? Like, you've lost a lot of weight. You look amazing. Like, what's happening? Like, have you been really sick? Or like, is there a new man in your life? Like, you, there's got to be a new man because you look way too good to have been really sick. Like, tell me, what's the story? And she goes, well, there is a new man in my life. And his name is Mike. Coach Mike. And then Ellen proceeds to drag me to the dirtiest, dustiest, dankest, like high school gymnasium floor you've ever seen in your life, where Coach Mike would have us do 45 minutes of calisthenics, after which he invited us to the opportunity to run a mile. Now, running a mile meant like 37 times around this gym. And he counted, like I tried to cheat and I couldn't. He'd give you like these little straws you had to throw down each time. But it took me six weeks, six weeks, Jeff, to run a mile without literally like leaning over and hurling. Like it it was bad. But I did it. And at the end of that mile, I was like all hopped up on endorphins. I was like, you know, if I string three of those together, I could do a 5K. So six weeks later, I did a 5K. And at the end of that, I was all hopped up on endorphins. I'm like, you know, if I string two of those together, I could do a 10K and on and on. And as I mentioned, I live in Boston. So every spring you see these people running, you know, down the street and it's so inspiring. Then I was like, maybe I could do it. And again, as soon as I saw the image of myself possibly crossing the finish line, I was hooked. I couldn't not do it, right? I couldn't. And this isn't if you can dream it, you can do it. I was doing it. And because I was doing it, I was able to dream the thing, right? So I remember walking in to the very first day um, of training, and the coach is standing there, and I was like, hi, coach. I just signed up for this marathon. I've never run a marathon before. The farthest I've gone is 10K. And I have a half marathon like a month from now. And I'm not even sure I can do it. And he looked at me with this like Yoda, like, you know, focus. And he goes, Laura, you can do it. I believe in you. And I'm here to help. And I swear to God, I just looked at him and I repeated, I can do it. You believe in me and you're here to help. And he was like, yes. And then I like in a trance, I walked away and I sat down And from that moment. I knew I was going to be able to complete it. So what are the lessons here? The lessons are, you don't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to do this amazing thing. I'm going to do this hard thing you start doing. And once you start doing, I didn't have to have confidence that I could run 26.2 miles. I had to have confidence that I could run one mile 26.2 times. Right? So I only had to have confidence to get started. Number one. Number two, I surrounded myself with people who saw what I could do, who believed in me, who didn't let me settle for mediocrity, and who made sure that I was going to show up because I make my living as a motivational speaker. But I'm here to tell you that motivation is BS because motivation means I have to wake up every single morning at four in the morning and go, I can't wait to go out and run 10 miles in the snow today. Nobody says that unless they're a sociopath. But if I am meeting you, To run 20 miles and it's five degrees outside, you better believe I will show up with bells on every single day because I'm going to break a promise to myself every day of the week, but I'll never break a promise to you. And so lesson number three, I had accountability also, right? So I had to be brave to get started. I had to have people around me. I had to turn the volume down on the naysayers, turn the volume up on the yaysayers. And I had to make sure that I had other people around me who were accountable so that I wouldn't let them down
1: yeah yay sayers I, I i don't think i've ever heard anybody say yaysayers sayers before so I've got to, i haven't
0: either i just made that up just now and i was like i should make a note of that that's pretty good oh
1: we're trade <laughs> we're trademarking that Laura. yeah we're trade uh, we're trademarking that that's great i'll make a good sound clip um, now, you know it comes to your network your support network so they're yay sayers they're also they also serve an accountability role now did this network of yaysayers sayers just magically form or were you intentional about creating it
0: uh, super intentional. I think that there are a lot of people who are in our lives and we think that they're our network, we think that they're our community, and they are, but should they be? Uh, that's the question that I ask a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people in our lives who are there because of history, or they're there because of blood, or they're there because we've just you know not been very good about uh, curating who should be in our lives, not very good about boundaries. So I have been very intentional about people. There's a study uh, that I that I reference in Wonder Hell that says that if you're, the people who are around you are obese, you are 57% more likely to be obese. That's an interesting study. What's even more interesting about the study is that they show that these people don't have to be physically proximate to you. They don't have to live in your house. They don't have to be the people you hang out with at book club or poker night. They have to be the people whose attention you're, you who are, who are getting your attention. So if there are people who are in your world, if you are absorbing them on social media and they are negative, if they are complaining, if they're pessimistic, if they're nasty, if they're not well-read, you're going to become just like that. What they think becomes what you think, what they socialize becomes what you socialize, what they normalize becomes what you normalize. And so I was very, I was very, uh, intentional. To make sure that the people who are around me, whether it's physically around me or just in my, you know, intellectual ethos or or, or ether, I I made sure that they were people who are further along the path that I want to be on. I aspire to them. They're peers of mine who want the same things, who 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 have the same values and the same measures of success. Or maybe they're mentees who I'm bringing along, but by helping them and teaching them, I'm reminding myself that I actually do know something about something, which by the way, helps a lot with the imposter syndrome problem. So I've tried to make sure that the people who are around me are not just um, yes men or yea sayers, right? But they're the ones who see me, who truly see me, who know what I'm capable of, and who don't let me settle for mediocrity. Who want to make sure that I am bringing my best every single day, and I'm not letting myself down or letting other people down. And and I in turn do the same for them.
1: Yeah, I wonder if that same study you referenced is the one that also talked about divorce rates being a bit of a of a contagion. Uh, Laura, do you have any tips? Oh,
0: I've noticed that. I've noticed that for sure. Yeah. When my um, when I was a kid, apparently I came home when, when I was in second grade and I said to my parents, are you guys getting divorced? And they were like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, everyone else's parents are getting divorced. Apparently second grade was like the year when everyone's parents got divorced. And then when my oldest was in second grade, I noticed that a lot of the parents, because it's like the older ones in second grade, the younger one goes to kindergarten, and all of a sudden the like, the dynamic of the household changes because the people don't have, you know, little ones at home and all of a sudden it's like, it's different. And, and then once one does, it's like, you just, there is, I I always call it divorce contagion. That's funny. Like you just notice that it just, it sort of happens.
1: Yeah, for sure. Do you have any tips We are I should say
0: we are recording yeah. this on my 25th wedding anniversary Okay, day, so
1: Everything's good. Yeah, everything everything's, everything's good at the auditing household. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to confirm, we have it on record. Everything's good. <laughs> Do you have some tips for getting the most out of that support network? Like what does that look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I you're asking me at a very interesting time because I am I am I am in ask mode right now. Like Every email, every tweet, every Facebook post, except for today's, you know, happy anniversary post, but everything is like, please buy my book. Please tell people my book. Please share about my book. So I am very much in ask mode. Now, ask mode doesn't work unless you spend a lot of time in give mode, right? So um I think a lot of times we feel like we don't want to network So we feel like networking is a dirty word. I don't want to go and, you know, ask people for stuff. But the truth is that most of the time you're networking, you are networking, searching for ways that you can help others, you can connect others, you can share your knowledge, you can help them do whatever it is that they want to do. So I like to think that if 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 I am doing my job right, I have shown up for people far more than I've asked them to show up for me. In fact, when Limitless came out... My publicist said, You know, we've like, I didn't, I literally did not have a mailing list when Limitless came out. It's not like I had a small one. Like, I literally did not have a mailing list. And the publicist was like, How did you do this? Like, how, we've never seen a ground game like this before. Like, how were you able to do it? We want to teach all of our other authors. What do we tell them to do? And I said, I don't know. Like, tell them to build a time machine and go back 20 years and show up for people. I don't really know. Like, so, how do you get the most out of your network? How do you get the most out of your community? You actively intentionally aggressively look for ways to help them. Like you can either have a, a scarcity mindset or an abundant mindset. And it's pretty clear in our networks, who has which, right? So, um, the ones that have scarcity mindsets, they're always there for the good times, but they never quite show up in the bad times. They're there's smiles in the front but knives in the back. They're keeping score. They're they are they are um they'll help you when you ask them, maybe, but like they never quite volunteer. Whereas the people with abundant mindsets like call you like I've gotten like six texts since we've just been on this call right now with people being like happy, you know, book launches next week. What can I do to help? right? Those are people who, they have abundant mindsets. I was supposed to do a podcast with someone tomorrow and she just um, decided that she had to cancel the podcast, um, like the whole pod, not just mine, but like the whole podcast. And she's like, but what else can I do? I'll like put it on my newsletter. I'm going to 10 said, tell 17 friends to buy a hundred books. I mean, she was just like, boom, 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 boom. But that happens because she has an abundant mindset. So I think it's really important to make sure that we are showing up and giving to other people making sure that the people who are in our, our, our network are abundant mindset people. And then honestly, and this might be controversial, I think it's really important to burn the bridge for people who are scarcity minded, who never show up for you, who are negative, who don't, are not additive to your life because that stuff is contagious too. And it takes energy and all the energy that you're spending worrying about those people. You're actually not adding and, and amplifying and augmenting the people who are additive to your life.
1: Yeah, no, that ma- that makes a lot of sense. I agree with you. And if it's helpful, there's a there's actually a, a professor from University of Michigan that wrote a book called Ask, and it's all on the science and research of asking for help. One of the things yeah. it talked about is if if you're worried about asking for help, it's probably an indicator that you are predisposed to being a helper and a giver because you're so afraid to ask other people for something. Yes. And th- the other part of it that was good news is that we we grossly underestimate how willing people are to do things for us. And, for and it, so it's sure. interesting to think about it.
0: Like think about this, like, when was the last time you did something for somebody? Probably pretty recently, right? Cause you're an abundant minded person. How did you feel when you did something for someone else? Did you feel terrible? Yeah, or did you great. feel great?
1: Yeah, it feels it feels great. Yeah. And, and I think it matters it, it matter, what the request is, what the labor is you have to do, who it is, a relationship. Yeah. It feels great to help right. somebody. Yeah.
0: It feels great. So I say to people all the time, like, if you're not asking me to help you, you are denying me the gift of feeling great. Like, why not let me feel great? Like, that's a pretty good thing. You're giving me the opportunity. And I actually, so in my in my side life, I do a lot of fundraising for nonprofits and for, for politicians. And I hated it when I first started. It just felt awful and yucky. And I hated asking people for money. Until so finally, someone said to me, look, the way I ask for money is I see it as an opportunity for them to feel really good. I'm giving them the gift of feeling really good about helping a cause or a policy or a person that they care about. And I was like, oh, well, that's different because I was feeling like I was like reaching into their pocket and like taking money. And in fact, I'm giving them an opportunity to be effective. How amazing wow. is that? And so, you know, when I take that and I'm like, well, now asking somebody to buy my book is like not a big of a deal, but you know, it's still hard. You're still asking. It's still like a rejection filled, awful process, but I kind of look at it as like a research experiment. It's like a fact-finding mission. Like I learn a lot about people, about whether or not they're showing up or not.
1: Yeah, that's a good paradigm shift. Um, So when we talk about Wonder Hell, I can sort of, I think the advantages are becoming really clear in this, in this conversation, like leaning into Wonder Hell and it opens up a new it's almost like a new a new awakening in your life like you you're reaching your potential you're growing you're learning uh, you're reaching your full potential and all those kinds of things that we aspire to but there must be some downsides or the dark side to wonder hell if we can't leverage it what are some of those the dark sides or the downsides of it Laura
0: Yeah i mean so you know the hell part of wonder hell is the burden that we feel of this untapped potential right so When I was in recruiting, I used to notice that internal candidates always left. Now, obviously, internal candidates who don't get the job will leave if they're treated badly in the process. But we made a point of treating candidates really well. In fact, a lot of candidates who didn't get the job, who went on to other organizations, would call us and hire us as their search firm because they were like, you were the only search firm who treated me well. Like, I want to hire you. So I know we treated them well. But they still left. And I was so fascinated by why they left until I realized one day that the very act of interviewing for the bigger job meant that they literally had to wear the clothes of that role, speak in the voice of that role, answer questions in the mindset of that role. And once they saw themselves in that new bigger role, they couldn't unsee it. And so some of the downsides of Wonder Hell are that space in between when you see your potential and when you realize it. Right. That in-between spot is really stressful. Um, it demands that you push yourself beyond what you thought you were capable of doing. It demands that you walk into rooms where you didn't think you belonged before or weren't invited to be in, right? So there's doubt and there's imposter syndrome. It demands that you find a new gear and you work a little harder. So there's the worry about burnout. Um, it also demands that we deal with a lot of uncertainty in the world around us. So sometimes we're blocked by getting to that potential because you know, there's a global pandemic or we have a health issue. Issue or um, you know, one of our financiers backs out or something happens. And so there's all kinds of things that we can't control. And so the 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 sort of the dark side of it is that sometimes each new level brings a new devil, but sometimes that devil is 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 external to us and is outside of our control.
1: Yeah. You mentioned some tips for leveraging Wonder Hell, but I I I wonder if I wonder if the advice though is different, Laura, if you find yourself spiraling to the point where you might be ruminating in self-doubt and imposter syndrome. What do you do to get yourself out of that spiral?
0: Well, I would say the first thing I would say is that if we are ruminating and we're spiraling and we're not moving forward, that inaction is also a choice, right? Inaction is action. And um, a a really interesting study that I quote in Wonder Hell uh, says that... um, People who flip a coin and the coin tells them to move forward and do something, whether it's leave a job, leave a spouse, like whatever the thing is, buy the car, like who cares? They are, when they look back six months or a year later, are happier, regardless of whether or not the decision worked out than the people who flipped the coin and the coin said, don't do it, stay where you are. Action beats stagnation every day of the week. So the even just like being stuck and ruminating, I would say be mindful of that. Because even if you, even if you're like, well, I'm not going to do anything now, unless you're actively saying, I'm not going to do anything now because I need to collect this piece of data and that piece of data and save this amount of money and have that network. If you're just saying I'm not going to do anything now and I'm just going to wait, that's a decision. That's an active decision that you're making to be inactive. And that comes at a cost. Like there's a, there's a tax on that. So um, that's the first thing I'll say just to just to preface it. But I think imposter syndrome and doubt and uncertainty and all of those things, they're actually not bad. Like we hear them in our in our brains, it's like, oh my God, you haven't done this before. And really we need to reinterpret those emotions to, oh my gosh, you haven't done this before. Right. So I mean, just think about imposter syndrome, like the gall of the term imposter syndrome alone, like you're an imposter, maybe you should leave. It's a syndrome. Are you feeling okay? Maybe you should lay down. Like just the term itself, imposter syndrome, is so offensive to the people that are branded with the term. And then when we just brand ourselves of, I feel like an imposter, we, we're assigning ourselves an illness that we don't actually have. I mean, most of the time, the illness is with the institution that wasn't built for the person who was the imposter, right? It wasn't built for them. It wasn't built by them. So, of course, we feel like an imposter, right? Like anybody who doesn't look like the like madmen in the 1950s we're imposters, whether you're a woman, a person of color, whether you're LGBTQ, whether you're an entrepreneur, right? Like anybody who's like a barbarian at the gate, we're going to be imposters. But here's what I've learned from the hundred glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic medalists, startup unicorns, every one of them at every age and at every stage, whether they've had a bajillion successes or they've just had their first success, each one of them still has imposter syndrome every single time, but they don't hear it as imposter syndrome they don't hear it as a limitation. They hear it as an invitation. They hear it as a sign that they're on the right track, that it's exciting and it's new and it's interesting. So, you know, I think a lot of times we've been told that all these emotions that come at us, right, the doubt, the uncertainty, the anxiety, these are like slings and arrows and terrible things. But really, I think that if if we renegotiate our relationship with these emotions and we see them as exciting uh uh you know that they're 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 messengers that we're on the right track we actually change our interpretation of them when we change what we decide to do with them
1: yeah and i've appreciated that that conversation has been put into the spotlight in recent years at least i think it's more recent where really successful people are normalizing self-doubt and like you can't be successful without it so i think that i think Maybe perhaps slowly the narrative that self-doubt is is actually an emotion that maybe is, is an indicator you're on the right track. And if we can reframe it- Yeah, we can use I mean, it to again, manage-
0: here's yeah. the thing about leaders. The closer you get to the head of the table, the more you're expected to talk. And the more you're expected to talk, the less you're able to listen. But how do you become a good leader? You become a good leader by talking to lots of people, by listening to lots of people, by learning lots of things. So. The closer you get to the head of the table and the less opportunity you have to learn, the only person you're talking to is yourself. So of course you're going to have self doubt because you're actually not having an opportunity to test the theories that are you're coming up with in your brain. So I I'm glad that that's becoming a conversation that we have. It I just got a Kirkus review of the book and one of the lines in it is like it's a really risky narrative to like like successful people don't make for really compelling uh, uh, heroes and it's like well yeah except it's really lonely when you're there by yourself and you're trying to figure it out and you're filled with self-doubt, but who else can you talk to? Cause like you can't complain, but it doesn't make it any easier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great takeaway. What you said about the closer you get to the head of the table, the less people you're talking to and listening to that's uh, that's really interesting to contemplate the implications of that. Now, I, I, as you become bolder and more successful and put yourself out there naturally there's going to be more critics. How do you deal with, the armchair critics and the haters.
0: I mean, I'll give you the I'll give you the the like on paper answer, and then I'll give you the real answer, right? I mean, the on paper answer is that you shouldn't take criticism from anybody whose praise doesn't matter to you. Fine. Okay, That's a meme. In reality, I can tell you line for line, word for word, every one star review I've ever gotten but I cannot quote you a single five-star review at all. I just can't. Right. So like, yeah, they say like, don't read the comments, don't read the reviews, but of course you do. I had a conversation with Brad Meltzer who um, is a, a a multiple New York times bestselling author of, of, of historical thrillers. And I actually happen to know him from high school. So I've known him for a really long time and, and, and I interviewed him for the book and when i we talked about this idea of like critics and what do you do and he told me this great story where um he wrote his first book And he got 23 rejections and he thought the 24th was going to be different. Like this was going to be the one, like the agent was like, go home, wait by the phone. We're going to have a bidding war. And he's like, finally, I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to be able to marry my sweetheart's high school sweetheart. Um, It's going to be amazing. And he goes home and he waits by the phone. The phone rings and he picks up the phone. He's like, hello. And all he hears is, sorry, kiddo. They didn't want it hangs up the phone and he was like, fine, if they don't want that one, I'll write another one. If they don't want that one, I'll write another one. And he was like, I'm just going to do it. And he did. And eventually he's now this like incredibly, you know, successful novelist who's had, you know, like TV shows and books, you know, uh, 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 bid for movies. And, and he said, but every time I sit down to write, and he's written like 12 novels at this point, every time I sit down to write, I think to myself, sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo. Sorry kiddo because and, and that's rocket fuel for me because all I can think of is there are so many people who believed in me, who like what I write, who buy my books, who go to my movies, who listen to my TV you know my watch my TV shows and and I don't want to disappoint a single one of them. He goes the rest of them who didn't like it, whatever, who cares but I think about the ones who still believed in me anyway and that's who I write for. Sorry kiddo, sorry kiddo, sorry kiddo. And then I go. And I loved that because what he what 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 he he did is he understood that there are going to be critics. But despite the critics, maybe even, you know, because of the critics, there are other people who love him more. And then he said he went to dinner once with David Baldacci, another you know famous uh, novelist. And he's like, I don't know he goes, it's really hard. He goes, it's really hard, but who can I complain to? Like, it's really hard. And David said, look, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Like, we're not digging ditches. He goes, but it's still hard. It's okay. It just means you found something you love enough to get right. Mm -hmm. And so I think about those two things and I think, okay, they're going to be the critics and they're not going to like me. There's not much I can do about them, right? I mean, a lot of times people's criticism comes more from their own, like what's inside of them than what's actually happening with you. But if we learn to ignore the critics and actually focus on the people who love us and who we love, right, a lot of times the problem isn't that the, that, the, that the, there are too many critics. The problem is that we turn up the volume on the critics and we haven't turned, you know, we need to turn the volume down on them to just see the, 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 the fans that are always there. But also to remember the reason that we care about the critics and the reason that we care about the fans is because we're doing something that we care enough about to get right. Yeah, so I yeah. think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Like how lucky are we that we found something we care enough about to get right?
1: Yeah. I, that's good framing, really good framing and negativity bias uh, runs strong through our veins for sure. But I, I of course, I, I like how you frame. And that we should go to, go to school,
0: right? We should go to school on the critics who are correct, but we should also decide number one, is this somebody whose criticism I actually respect and would want? Have they walked on the path before me? Do they know what they're talking about? And number two, um, Does it matter, right? Does their, like, it's, is it okay? Like maybe I'm not gonna be exactly like they want me to be, but maybe I'll be exactly who I am and maybe that'll work too.
1: Yeah, my, uh, my trick is I think about mortality a lot. And in my, uh, in my final days, if I have any warning that it's coming, I'm, I'm gonna be really disappointed if I let people that didn't have my best interest at heart guide my actions and my decisions. And it seems to somewhat help uh, on, uh, on, on most days.
0: Yeah, there was there was a story about an author who was, I can't remember, is like a science fiction writer. And he's just written like, uh, maybe it was Isaac Asimov. I can't remember. He's written like a 70 books or something. And there's a story about how he went to a cocktail party once and a woman was like, you know, I really didn't like what you did in chapter 10 of that book where you did this, that, and the other. And he looked at her and he was like, what book? I've written like five books since then. What are you even talking about? Like, you know, Andy Warhol has a great quote where he says, um, make your art. Put it out into the world let people decide what they think about it and while they're deciding what they think about it keep making more art and i think that's great right we should just keep going like if we just keep producing and keep being prolific and keep putting out more podcasts and more books and something you might criticize like a podcast 17 podcasts ago but it doesn't actually matter because you've now moved on to the next thing
1: right well and you're you're making me think of something there around like if you really enjoy the process of creation if you just to en- if you just enjoy learning and growth like i don't care what anybody else thinks about it i really enjoy it so i'm going to keep doing it and i think there's i think there's something special about having a mindset like that
0: yeah and not only that it falling in love with the process is so super important so as i mentioned i interviewed I, I interviewed all these people and some of the people i interviewed were like olympic medalists like gold medalists and i asked them all like well like what do you think about when you're in the starting blocks like what 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 goes through your mind and every single one of them said nothing i was like how can that be like i would be like oh my god i'm so nervous what's happening i'd be like visualizing myself going past the finish line like oh, how can that be and they're like nothing and this one guy alex ferreira who does the um the half pipe uh freestyle skiing the guys who like you know just like twist like a billion times in the air and then come down and then do it again crazy sport. I think it's like the most dangerous sport in the world. He said, I earn my medals in practice. I just pick them up on race day. And I loved that line because I was like, he is so committed to the process. He's so committed to the creation and the discipline around habits that he doesn't actually worry about race day because he's already, by the time he gets to race day, the cake is baked. He's already taken care of it. And then I watched the last dance with Michael, uh, Michael Jordan and, you know, Michael Jordan, like, you know, Chicago Bulls, three-peat. And there was this whole conversation where they said, like, you won two championships. You were maybe going to win a third. The whole city of Chicago, the whole country, the whole world was watching. Were you nervous? And he was like, nah, I wasn't nervous at all. And they couldn't understand why he was a nervous. And he goes, because I, I trusted my skills. I did the work. I did the practice. I knew what I could do. I trusted my skills. And I, I love that idea of falling in love with the process because if you do that, not only do you care less about the outcome, but ironically, the outcome is better. The outcome takes care of itself. Yeah.
1: That is such a profound quote. Like, I don't know if I've heard in recent memory a more profound quote than I win my medals in practice, I pick them up on race day. Isn't that something? So, you. Isn't that something? Oh, it is. No, you interviewed such a long and impressive list of, of, um, of people to write wonder hell and i wondered what was the thing or or things that surprised you most about those conversations
0: oh yeah that's easy um that's that that none of them found their way out of wonder hell like i interviewed all these people hoping to like i was in wonder hell and i was like tell me how to survive this i need to get out of it and um what I what surprised me most was this notion that on the other side of this wonder hell is simply the next one and the next one and the next one. Like, I went into these conversations thinking, I'm going to learn how to, like, deal with this, how to like be fine, like not have to worry about it. And what I learned in the process was that you don't survive it. You just learn to look forward to it and be excited by it and learn from it and thrive in it instead. And so, you know, when you're talking to somebody like Sally Krotchek who founded Elevest, a 2 billion, like billion with a B, billion dollar investment platform, and she still has imposter syndrome, or you talk to, um, uh, Joe DeSina, who founded the Spartan games, and he's still like everything fell apart during the pandemic. But like I still got up every day and I exercised and I took cold showers and the habits are the habits and I just stuck with the same thing. Or, you know, you talk to um Kara Golden, who founded Hint Water, a multi, you know, billion dollar beverage company, and she's like, Yeah. You just, like, you just have to stay in control of the things that you can control. There are just, there there are lessons in the book about how to navigate each of these individual emotions that come flying at us when we're in wonder hell. But I, boy, I was really hoping for a way out, you know? I was hoping for a way out. And so in the surprise of on the other side of this one is the next one and the next one and the next one is this, like, that there is, An excitement, right? There is an excitement. There's a passion. There's a um, uh, uh, like this adventurous spirit to all of these people. Like the ones who found their way through it, the ones who thrived in it, they embraced their ambition. They were like, you know what? I want more. I'm worthy of more. I see that I can do more and I'm going to do it. Awesome. They renegotiated their relationship with all of these emotions. And then they just got comfortable being uncomfortable because the way to live a big, full, bold life is to be okay like nine toes over the edge of incompetency and just not knowing what you're going to do next but knowing that everything that got you here isn't necessarily going to get you there but it sure puts you on a pretty strong foundation to figure out how to get to where you want to be
1: so as you string these wonder hells together how do how does each one differ from the last
0: Oh for, well, so so how I string each of what together? So the, the story. So you
1: the... so you kind of you get into Wonder Hell after you wrote your first book, and then you sort of learn how to survive and adapt in that one. Then you write and now you you're writing Wonder Hell. I was just kind of wondering, does do the as you experience each new Wonder Hell, do they are they the same emotions or or do you experience? I don't them think differently?
0: they are. You know. And that was the challenge of writing this book because like in Limitless, it was like, okay, why does success not equal happiness? It's because we think of success as this thing, right? That was defined by other people. Okay, so that's the problem. The solution is we have to figure out, you know, what success means for us. And here is a specific rubric about how to figure out how to do that. And then here's how you change your, your career, you change your workplace, or you change your life in order to do it. Like that was a very like cut and dry, very clear, like here's how to do it. Wonder Hell was harder to write because everybody who's experiencing the Wonder Hell is experiencing it at different parts of their journey. So they might be feeling imposture syndrome. They might be feeling full of doubt. They might be feeling like they're, 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 everything is uncertain and they have no idea what to do. They might've just imagined a bigger version of themselves and they're not quite sure how to get there. Maybe the ground just fell out beneath them and they're trying to deal with the crisis. So it's, the book is sort of written almost in like a choose your own adventure kind of way, which is why we wrote it as a, um, as I, I say, we, why we wrote it as an amusement park. And I say, we, because, um, When I was first thinking about all the themes of the book, I had a conversation with Rahaf Harfouche, who wrote Hustle and Float and who was, you know, absolutely brilliant. And she was like, you know, she's like, you should write this as an amusement park. Like you go to an amusement park and there are all these different towns and there's all these different rides and everybody wants to go in their own order of how they want to do it. So you should have this thing and it's like... Wonder Hell, Imposter Town, Doubt'sville, Burnout City, you are here, right? With like a little map. So like the, the the amusement park was actually her idea. And originally there were like five towns and three rides each. And so we I spent a lot of time driving her crazy. Like, what if I moved it to here? And what if I moved this to there to sort of create themes? Um, but the the book is a little more difficult because it's written in this way where you can open it up and you can say, you know. I just subbed for my boss at this event, and now I kind of realized I like the limelight. Maybe I have a vision of myself that's bigger, and you go right to the imaginarium. Or you could say, you know, everything was working well, and I was on track, and then I got knocked off course by this thing I wasn't expecting. Boom, bumper cars, right? Like, you can just pick and choose where you want to go in the book, depending on where it is, because everybody is experiencing these 15 different emotions. At different times. So there's just no way to do it in a chronological way.
1: Laura, I don't know if you've ever thought about this uh too intentionally. So I'll be I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. When I look at your background, I think that you have another super skill. And it's knowing when to quit. So you dropped out of law school. I mean, you sold a really successful. I definitely rec-
0: knew when to quit then. <laughs> right? You know,
1: yeah, and like you sold you sold a really successful recruiting firm. Like How have you known when it's time to change gears and and stop doing something?
0: So I like doing puzzles, um, but I don't like doing puzzles twice. So um, the way I describe it is like when the pandemic hit and everybody ordered jigsaw puzzles and we're all like home with our kids doing jigsaw puzzles, we had some puzzles and we did them. And then when we did them, we were done. And then you couldn't get any more puzzles because everyone was ordering puzzles. It was hard to order them. So instead of doing the same puzzles again, we just took the three boxes and put them all in one big box, and then like tried to do the puzzles out of that. And then when we finished that, we were like, let's do them all together, but put the covers away because like, you can't look at the pictures. We tried to do that. And then when we did that. We were like, okay, let's do it upside down, right? So like, uh, there's only so many times you can do the same puzzle until you're like, I've kind of done it every way I could possibly do it. So each time, um, well, I left law school because I was fascinated by this unknown governor from Arkansas who had like not a chance in hell to win, but had this great idea about community service in exchange for college tuition. And I was like, that needs to happen, right? That just So I was just compelled to go forth. But then we got AmeriCorps out and I'd done every job you could possibly do. I was a political appointee. I ran you know, one of the service programs. I ran a, a, a grant fund. Like I, I did it all. There was not much else to do. So I left and I became a headhunter, and I was a headhunter at one of the best firms in the country that did specifically nonprofit university foundation advocacy search. And when I'd done enough searches over and over and over again, I was like, there, there's a different way to do this, a better way to do it. And I walked into my boss's office and I was like, there's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. He was like, you could stay and do it your way. You could stay and do it our way. We love you. You're doing great work. Please stay. But if you want to do it your way, you have to leave. And at that point, I'd kind of already done the puzzle. So, and the puzzle wasn't good and I knew there was a better way to do it. So I left and I started that. And then I spent the first five years of that search firm really reinventing how executive search was done in the mission-driven sector. The next five years, growing that business 100% year over year over year. So I went from like a doer to kind of being a manager and a leader And then I'd kind of also reach the point where I'm like, okay, I've done this. It's time. Like, I I was the moxie driven founder who would walk in and be like, there's a better way to do search, and you should think about this instead of hiring those traditional firms. That was the first five years. The second five years, I'd walk in and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's pitching it the same way as you. Why are you better? Like we would spawned enough competition that I had to completely change how I did it. And then by the end of that time, I realized that the firm didn't need me like out there telling the world that search should be done differently. It needed my partner who was the one making sure it was done excellently to run the firm. So I think there's just these moments where you're like, I've done it. I've done it as well as I can do it. I've done it to the highest level of challenge that I can do it. And in order for me to get to the next level, it's such a huge climb that I'm not sure that the juice is worth the squeeze. And in Wonder Hell, I talk about um, Whitney Johnson, who um, talks about the S curve, right? Where at the bottom of the S curve, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Everything's really hard. And then the S takes off and it goes up and you're like, okay, I got it. I'm figuring it out. And at the top of the S, you're like, now I know what I'm doing. And you just kind of start coasting and what she explained to me was at the top of the s curve if you coast for too long you get complacent and you start self sabotaging and i was like no nobody self sabotages when they're successful they're fine and she was like well lord tell me a story about a time when maybe you didn't do enough preparation and you kind of mailed in a little bit and maybe it didn't work out or maybe it did work out like tell me about a time and i was like oh and i realized that there was a moment where i walked into a big 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 search completely unprepared. And I danced my fanny off and we got the work. Lucky, 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 lucky we got the work. If we hadn't gotten the work, it would have damaged my reputation. It would have damaged my firm's reputation. It would have damaged my staff's reputation. It would have damaged the client's reputation. I got way luckier than I should have. And on the elevator on the way down, I texted my business partner and I'm like, maybe it's time for me to go. Like, I think I just committed massive malpractice. And when I told her that story, she was like, yep, you are at the top of the S-curve and that was self-sabotage. And here's the thing, if you don't quit, you don't leave when you're at the top of your S-curve. The market makes a decision for you, right? Like if you're complacent and you're mailing it in, your boss knows, the market knows, your customers know, and they realize that you've lost that energy and they start going elsewhere. So we have to be very self-aware about when we're at the top, when we've done the puzzle too many times and we're no longer bringing our best to it. Because if we don't leave, the market leaves us.
1: It sounds like you're allergic to stagnation. That is a, uh, that is a great story.
0: Yeah, I think maybe I am. I just I think I'm just endlessly curious and you know, like somebody asked me, you know, about the 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 speaking and the writing and I said, you know, like this is kind of like a bonus career for me cuz you know, I sold my firm, I thought I was done. And I said, you know, I will keep speaking as long as I'm getting better, but it's like kind of like an ace. It's like an, it's like an asymptotic curve. Like you're never going to perfect it, but you can keep getting closer and closer and closer. And eventually as you get closer to perfect, it gets harder and harder to harder to get better. And so there's like, there's a certain amount that I'm willing to do. And then I don't know that I'm willing to like do the next giant push to get like the 1% better. Right. But while I'm still getting like 5% better, 5% better, 5% better each time I do it, that's interesting. So it's really, I think if you're somebody trying to figure out whether you like want to stay with what you're doing, whether you don't want to stay with what you're doing, I mean, I ask myself this question, would success in this next speech, in this next book, in this next assignment, in this next project, will it get me more of what excites me? Whether it's fame, fortune, right? Like knowledge, the network, whatever the thing is, will it get me more more of what excites me? Or not and if it gets me more of what excites me then it's worth the work and if it doesn't then what are we doing it for Uh,
1: that is very well said Uh, laura you've shared so much with me today thank you and i think above all you're just you're living and breathing uh in authenticity what it means to embrace wonder hell. So you're such a qualified person to write that book and I'm so glad that you did. I, you know, I can't wait to read it and I can't wait for all of our listeners to read it. And I just wish you nothing but success with it. And and thank you so much for being here with me today.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I really, when you reached out to me over Twitter and asked me to be on your show, I was like, oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> so I'm really happy to have had this conversation.
1: Oh, glad you, uh, glad you felt that way. Where do you want people to track you down on the uh, World Wide Web?
0: Yeah, so my name is Laura Gassner-Odding. All my friends call me L-G-O, and so I'm on all the socials at hey L-G-O, HeyL-G-O, H-E-Y-L-G-O. Um, and you can find the book at wonderhell.com or anywhere you buy fine books.
1: Thank you so much, Laura. And to all of our listeners, just urging and, and encouraging you to embrace your own version of Wonder Hell to open up new possibilities in your own life. Until next time, thanks for being with us, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.